This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Take it back a little bit, as they would say. <laughs> Let's take it down a notch. Let's take it down a notch. All right, shares of J.C. Penney, uh, yeah, going down a few notches. They are slumping on news its CEO, alas, has found a new home. More specifically, at Home Depot. Bert Flickinger, managing director of Strategic Resource Group, uh, a global consumer product and retail consulting company. He's been following retail for years. We love talking retail. Should with say him. his former home was Home Depot. He is. <laughs> That's right. He's found a new home at Lowe's. <laughs> oh, right. He's in our Bloomberg Eleven. 30 studio in New York. Correct. He's left Home Depot. He's at Lowe's. Um, tell us about this. First of all, for JCPenney, uh, investors not too happy. How much of a bummer is it for them? It won't be a bummer, uh, Carol and Jason, if Joe McFarland, who came from that great leadership family at Home Depot, started by Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and Arthur Blank, led by Frank Blake. Hal Lawton was in that group, now president of Macy's, turning around Macy's. Uh, and and uh, and Craig Manier uh, continued to turn around Home Depot at Lowe's expense, and McFarland uh, went to Penny. He's been great in the stores. He's been great accelerating Sephora, great accelerating appliances, and so uh, for for Penny, if it's a CEO for Cornerstone office of the other three candidates, real cause for concern because Penny has not had the full credit lines and terms from the vendors for eight full quarters since like, Bill Ackman and Pershing Square yeah. left them nearly on death's doorstep. Yeah. So gross margins are about 800 to 1,000 basis points higher. And the vendors uh, from Disney to LVMH, which owns Sephora, will be very confident if Joe McFarland gets promoted. If he doesn't, look out below. Let me ask you a question. First of all, you laid it out so nice with all these sort of comings and goings among among all these retailers. And I know that retail, if I can say this, is a little bit incestuous with with people moving around. But, you know, having someone move after such a distinguished career at Home Depot, and obviously there was an interim step, and then go to Lowe's, how unusual is that? I mean, it feels a little Coke and Pepsi to me, but you tell me. It is a little Coke and Pepsi, but at the same time, Frank, Frank Blake, who started the continuum, left GE Power, where mm. it was general counsel and then president. Bob Nardelli from GE screwed up Home Depot and took something that was unbreakable and broke it. Frank Blake came from GE Power and and fixed what was broken and, and made it a nonstop powerhouse. I was working with David Pluff, President Obama's campaign manager, at the end of the 08 election at the Chief Merchandising Officers Awards dinner. And all the Lowe's people were saying, Blake, McFarland, uh, Lott, and all those guys, they don't stand a chance against us. They've already lost. Well, in the next decade, uh, they all capitalized. So now it's taking that Home Depot family right. and cross-pollinating with Marvin Ellison going to Lowe's to get get that appliance business more aggressively over from Sears. And McFarland, who's done a great job as chief merchant and chief store officer, to re- rebuild J.C. Penney the way Mike Ullman did previously and Vanessa Cas- 
Dagna and Alan Questrom did in prior evolutions before uh, the Bill Ackman-led disaster. Bert, how cool, though, is it that here you have somebody running Lowe's that really knows kind of the inside of how Home Depot works, right? It's yeah. like, great, you go to the enemy. I mean, typically it's like, <laughs> where's that non-compete? But how great is it that they, he understands that, and now he's at Lowe's? It is great, yet... Craig Manier uh, was at the awards, Stevie Spiller uh, tunneled the Towers Awards dinner. Is he name-dropping a lot, Jason, a little today? Bit. I'm no, just saying, Bert. And, and Craig Manier was being honored, so it's just relevant just because it was a week and a half ago. Uh, but all the Home Home Depot Hall of Famers said Craig Manier's the best CEO yeah, ever. So it's, it's going to be War of the Worlds worth paying for to see Marvin Allison uh Home Depot All-Star alum, Carol, yeah. as you and Jason are talking about, against uh, the best and the brightest of the Home Depot All-Stars now of Craig Manier with Frank Blake Jr., who was a decorated Army Ranger captain <laughs> and war hero running operations for Home Depot as well. Who would you bet on? I'd bet I'd bet on Home Depot to win, and I'd bet on Joe McFarland, ex-Home Depot, to win at JCPenney if he gets promoted. Interesting. So let's talk about Penny for a second if we can, because this has been really kind of a, a tragedy of, of American corporate history in a lot of ways. I mean, you laid out some of it before us. Is it fixable at this point? It is fixable. Even James Cash Penny himself filed personal bankruptcy in the 1930s and still brought it back. Mm. Mr. Sam, Sam Walton, got his start and learned retail at J.C. Penny. And as Charlie Pellet just uh, announced on Bloomberg, WTI oils over $72 a barrel. Penny always <laughs> does well and people spend because they have so many stores in the uh, energy producing belt, especially uh, oil from the Permian to the Bakken. And when agriculture, construction, and shipping in Middle America is doing well, Penny does well. So, And they're doing a tremendous job with the Spanish-speaking consumers, even better than Macy's with Telemundo, Univision, Latina Magazine, and the hair salons. And uh, the adver- the advertising's well. The uh, apparel is terrific in the stores. The in-style salons are terrific. So Penny has all the willing el- uh, winning elements. They just need a winner and a leader, and Joe McFarland's that winner and leader, right, pl- right person, right place, right time. 20 seconds left, just very quickly. What about online? <laughs> I mean, Jason, uh, you're, you're, you're asking the most important question. Online isn't there at JCPenney, and that's the reason McFarland should be promoted. He was running the stores. The people online have, have, have really accelerated geometrically, but they haven't done it exponentially, and that's the opportunity, as you referenced. Great, great stuff to watch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group in our New York studio. Low shares down nine-tenths of a percent. Home Depot down more than one percent. And you've got JCPenney down five percent. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, when we want to know what's really happening in the world, we got to turn to the guys in the corner office. And so we're delighted to have with us Bob Ulo. He's the chief executive officer, officer excuse me, of San Mina. He's based in San, San Jose, California, but he is with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Bob, great to have you with us. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. So I got to start by asking you, tariffs are something that seem to be on the mind of just about every CEO, especially a CEO like you who has a global business. You obviously rely on a pretty complicated supply chain. So what's on your mind when you hear 
and read all the headlines coming out around tariffs specifically? Well, yeah, well, the main thing for us is helping our customers solve whatever ends up being the ultimate structure. But uh, we have a very good global footprint. Uh, we operate in 23 countries around the world. We have about 75 factories in those countries. And uh, we're, we're, we don't always predict what's going to happen on a macroeconomic basis, but we try to stay flexible in terms of our, our global footprint, and that allows us to address whatever the issues are. Uh, what does that mean? Have. When you stay flexible, does it mean that you're already thinking about where are easier places to do business at this point because of some of the pushback that we're seeing kind of you know globally? Well, I think it really means that uh, – we are able to help our customers solve whatever the issues are. Again, we're talking about tariffs today, but right. certain times we've had customers who are looking for a solution in, in Asia, maybe not in China. We help them find that kind of solution. Over the last few years, we've seen a lot of business uh, moving into Mexico because of the proximity to the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the, the main point is we have a global footprint, which allows us to ebb and flow with whatever the macroeconomic events are and how we help our, our customers solve their problems. And as a country- Contract manufacturer, obviously, you have a some keen insights, I would imagine, into the minds of your own customers, as you're saying. How are they feeling about the global economy at this point, and, and maybe the U.S. economy, uh, specifically in terms of demand for their own products? Yeah, the customers I'm speaking with right now are very positive on both the U.S. and the global economy. I think we're in a really good place right now, and, and uh, we're having some component shortages and so forth that we're having to work our way through. But I think from a demand standpoint, uh, I'd say almost every customer is pretty positive right now. What's interesting about talking to a company like yourself, I mean, you do play into so many different industries. Um, medical systems, defense, industrial, oil and gas, clean tech, multimedia. So you really mm-hmm. have a good snapshot of what's going on in the global economy. Um, having said that, you don't see – does your order book give you what kind of visibility, you know, in terms of those industries and, and how far out? Yeah, it, it varies by industry and bar- it varies by which of our businesses we're engaged with a customer on. But uh, I'd say in general, for most of our customers, we get a one-year forecast, and it's a rolling forecast. Close in, it's fairly accurate. I'd say longer term, it's usually directionally correct. And that one-year forecast is pretty upbeat? Yeah, I'd say over the next year, things look pretty good for most of our customers. And you're here in New York. It sounds like meeting with investors. You uh, opened the NASDAQ yesterday, uh, I believe. Congratulations on that. And as you talk to your own investors and and shareholders, what are they asking you about? What's on their minds as as they think about Sanmina either as a holding that they already have or as a potential holding? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what we discussed today, and it starts with, with the question on what's going on with the business, what's going on with the economy, and and uh, we're really excited about the vertical markets we're focused on, and that's part of what we shared today. Uh, there's a huge trend, I'm sure you're very aware of, of more and more technology going into automobiles, so autom- mm-hmm. automotive is a is a big opportunity for us over the next few years. Uh, Medical is another area where we've been very strong for a number of years, and uh, we, we have a very good pipeline there. We're expecting to see ongoing growth in terms of medical. And then industrial has been an area we've been working on for a number of years, and we believe it's fairly unpenetrated, and so there's a lot of opportunity for outsourcing over the next few years in industrial. And in terms of your own hiring and growth, how are you feeling about your ability to tap the right talent, are you getting the the workers you need everywhere? Are there shortages some places? How are you feeling about that? Yeah, it varies depending on where we are around the world. We have about 46,000 employees, as I mentioned, in 23 countries. So you have different unemployment rates in different countries. Uh, it's definitely getting tighter than it was a few years ago, I would say, in general. Are you having to pay workers more? 
Uh, well, in some countries, it's actually mandated by minimum wages and so mm -hmm. forth and structures. So, um, yeah, we've definitely seen some labor rate inflation. But uh, in general, I would say we're able to get the talent that uh, that we're looking for. What about capital expenditures? Do you are, where are you guys on that? I was looking at some numbers just based on uh, the Bloomberg, and it looks like you guys are down. I think a little bit uh, quarter to quarter, down about twenty. You know, so what do, what are your yeah. plans there? Yeah, no, uh, we've been actually spending quite a bit in terms of, of capex. We did have we were down a little bit sequentially, yeah. but we had a very big quarter in, in the first quarter. I don't remember the precise number. Need to spend quarter. more or no? Um, it really depends on the new programs that we're winning. So I would mm -hmm. say in general, capex is a good indicator that we're winning new programs we have a need for more capital and and we're putting that in place and that's that's always our top priority to reinvest in the business and and so we're happy to do that all right well good to get some time with you thank you well thank you really, really appreciate, appreciate your time bob ulo he's chief executive officer at san mina based in san jose in our new york studio on this tuesday All right, everybody. Speaking of greater security, a new law goes into effect this Friday in the European Union. It's a new law that comes with a promise of privacy for its consumers and aims to reshape the way organizations approach data privacy and introduces dramatically stronger rules for data privacy. It's called GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. Stephen Yeo is back with us, Marketing Director of Panasonic Europe, joining us on the phone from the UK. And uh, we saw some research out from Marketo, and they talked about, Stephen, and I know you you are uh, an advisor to Marketo. They talked about how three-quarters of consumers are concerned with the amount of personal information that companies can access. I think it's really timely with Mark Zuckerberg back there talking to the European uh, Parliament uh, about their use, Facebook's use of data, uh, and their protection of privacy. Um, where are we? Are companies ready for this over in Europe? Yes. Uh, hello, Carol. It's, uh, nice to have you back. Yeah. Yes. So it, thank you very much. So, uh, yes, it's going to be a big uh, day on Friday. We're going to have uh, probably the biggest legislative changes I've seen in my 27-year uh, career in marketing. Um, yes, I think I'll be frank with you. I think that um, a lot of companies, um, I think I would say that 75% of them have done some sort of preparation but I think that the full scale of GDPR and the changes that will be necessary uh, in infrastructure and in terms of culture, uh, I would say that probably less than 50% of them are going to be truly ready for it. And how are consumers feeling at this point as you talk to them? Or do they feel like this is a necessary protection? Do they think this is enough. How how is our relationship, I guess, as consumers, really changing when something like this goes into effect, or is it? Um, well, I think more and more people are concerned about the protection of their personal data. Uh, it's fun. It's funny, but literally, as we speak, I believe Mark Zuckerberg is uh, speaking with the, uh, the 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 EU, and that we have had you know more and more high profile. Um, data breaches, uh, but also in addition, um, having personal data used in ways which maybe people never fully expected or realized um, that their data was going to be used for. I mean, you, you can see it in things like elections and targeted advertising. Um, personally, what I see over here is I think people are welcoming this. 
And I think that it is actually a very healthy development because mm. it means that companies have to be more transparent, more professional. It's actually um, sort, sort of almost ridding, um, it's going to be getting rid of the cowboys that, uh, the, that for companies to uh, deal with individuals, uh, whether they're cons- private consumers or in the B2B space, um, they're going to have to respect them more and respect their personal data and how they treat them and how they treat that Steve, data. And Stephen, I think that's a very healthy thing. Do you feel like we're going to look back at this, I don't know, in a couple of years' time and say, well, this was kind of a tipping point for social media and online companies who have been, you know, just pulling together all of our data? I mean, do you really think that things will change significantly, that there will be more transparency? Or do you also think at the same time, because so many of these social media companies – their success in terms of selling advertising is based on all this data accumulation. Um, do you feel like we're just going to feel better because they're going to be more transparent about what they're doing with it? I, that's exactly what I think is going to happen. I think we're going, you know, guess what? We're still going to impart our personal data, but to people that, and companies that we trust and who treat our data uh, responsibly. And, you know, guess what? I think that social media will continue and I think marketing will continue. But I think uh, all of us are just going to have to be a bit uh, more careful and wiser about how we uh, treat uh, personal data and who we share that data with, how it's processed and um, the consequences of getting it wrong. And Stephen, you, you mentioned that Mark Zuckerberg is, is testifying over there and obviously that follows his testimony here in the United States. Europe has been pretty tough on this and really has been leading the way. How much will this filter across the Atlantic, as it were, to the United States? Will there be similar measures or even something close to this that takes hold here in the U.S.? Uh, I mean, personally, I think this will, uh, that GDPR is probably going to be the, the the starting pistol for uh, um, a lot of global legislation on the protection and use of uh, personal data. GDPR does have global reach that if, for example, U.S. companies have got uh, personal data uh, of EU citizens within the EU or even uh, American citizens uh, uh, residing in the EU, they are bound by this law and the consequences of Flouting it are quite severe, that it's 20 million euros or 4% of global revenues, whichever is higher. That's steep. So, yeah. you know, and for example, I every day in my inbox, I will have at least, I would say, three or four uh, pieces of uh, email from someone in America trying to sell me something. And guess what? From Friday, that is uh, illegal. Amazing. It's, a ch- it's definitely a changing environment. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Stephen Yeo, he's Marketing Director at Panasonic Europe uh, on the phone from the UK. It's definitely going to be a different era when it comes to data and data privacy, certainly at least specifically over in Europe. Yeah, it's amazing to look at this and, and to put it into context. One of the stories that's getting a lot of readership on the Bloomberg right now is a story about Amazon and its AI facial recognition program uh, for police. Not surprisingly, the ACLU is not a fan. And, you know, when you sort of 
feather together this conversation that we just had, right. things we talked about last week on the Business Week show around AI. This is data. This is technology all really coming together in a way that has a lot of people very nervous. And for a long time, we felt very free about sharing a lot of data. And it does seem to be, as Stephen was saying, we're in the midst of a sea change here, both from a corporate perspective, but right. specifically from a consumer perspective. Especially when that data is sometimes biased data that's coming in and it's being churned and played around with, and it comes out with some conclusions that are biased. That's right. We and, talked to Christian yep. Loom about that, or we, we heard from Christian Loom about that last week. And it's Very le- good point. leading to some disturbing uh, situations, especially when it's been used by law enforcement. So interesting stuff, but uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about it. Right, so it only took a quarter of a century, but here we have it. The New York Stock Exchange naming its first woman to lead the way. Nick Baker is market structure editor at Bloomberg News from our Chicago bureau. And also back with us, Anne-Marie Slaughter, president and CEO of New America, a think tank focused on renewing America in the digital age. Nick, let me kick it off with you. Tell us about the news that we got today. Yeah, New York Stock Exchange has been around for 226 years. They've had 66 male presidents, and finally we've got one who's a woman, Stacey Cunningham, um, who's going to start this week taking over for Tom Farley. And she's been, what, at the New York Stock Exchange for a few years? Several years. She actually um, she began as an intern there in 1994, actually mm-hmm. not working for New York Stock Exchange, but working for a trader on the floor as an intern. And then she, uh, a couple years later, started as a specialist there on the floor, um, was there about 10 years, uh, then went over to NASDAQ for a while and then returned to NYC a few years ago. And I love, Nick, your story says that this move by the New York Stock Exchange means two of the top three U.S. stock exchange operators are now led by women. That includes, right, the NASDAQ uh, and what else? Yeah, Adina Friedman um, over at NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took over early last year. Um, CBOE, uh, the company used to be called Chicago Board Options Exchange, they have uh, a guy yeah. who's in charge, uh, Ed Tilly, but uh, two out of three is, 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 yeah. is a sign of progress. Anne-Marie, come on in on this. I mean, what's the significance of this? I, you know, I kind of kidded at the beginning that it only took us a quarter of a century to get here. Um, but nonetheless, what do you see as significant in this announcement? Well, it, it's it's terrific. I mean, every time a woman uh, breaks a glass ceiling, and this is a big one, it's important, and it sends a signal uh, to other women, but to the world at large. And, and you know, having a woman CEO at the New York Stock Exchange is yeah. is a big deal. It really is. Uh, it you know, it's we've got a long way to go. They, if we look at the actual trading floor, or the banks, or the Wall Street in general, that's one of the places you have the the smallest number of women, but but this is really a big step forward. Right. I think about the conversation she will ultimately have uh, with companies down the road that list on the New York Stock Exchange or future companies that want to list. You know, she can certainly have, Anne-Marie, this this ongoing conversation talking about the representation of women, you know, on public companies, whether it's their boards or in the C-suite or at senior uh, executive positions. Absolutely. And she's got plenty of great research uh, to 
back the point that if you want your company to perform better, more women will will help. The other thing I just have to say about her, though, while she was moving around with the NASDAQ and the uh, the NYSE, she also actually left and and spent nine months uh, training as a chef uh, and then six weeks in a top New York restaurant. And she basically said, you know, your career's not always linear. Uh, I thought I could take time off and I thought I could come back in. And she has. And that's actually uh, a great role model for women and for men. Right. The confidence to be able to go away from it and then be able to and and that there actually was a really top position there to come back to. Hey, um, Nick, Nick, come on back in on in terms of what are you hearing from folks that you're talking about now that this story is out and, and the naming of her to this position is out there publicly? Um, you know, one one of the things people are talking about is, is uh, of course, they're actually wondering what what's next for the the person she's replacing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's moving over to Tom a Farley. Uh, yeah. Tom Farley moving over to um, uh, Dan Loeb's hedge fund uh, to run a special purpose acquisition mm-hmm. company uh, focused on buying fintech companies, which is an interesting development. Um, the uh, you know she's coming on board um, in charge at a time when there's a lot of concerns about the sort of state of the capital markets in the U.S. where the ability to raise money in public markets is diminished. There's so much money for companies that want to remain private um, that they can practically remain private forever. Um, Uber being a great example of a company that's super valuable company, but they've chosen to remain private for so long. And so one of the challenges that uh, Stacey Cunningham will face, as any stock exchange president or, or head faces these days, is how do you persuade companies to make the you know, leap into being a public company? Um, and that's you know, it's sort of an existential threat to some extent to exchanges to figure out how do we get that? Because obviously they're only as, mm-hmm. um, only as good as the number of companies they have listed on them. Right, right. We've seen this trend certainly over the last couple of years when money was so cheap, there was so much money, and you have so many different – uh, outlets, whether it's family offices, um, you know, institutional investors, venture capital who are chasing money and, and providing money uh, into kind of startups and so on. Hey, Anne-Marie, one last question here. And, you know, so much has happened, I feel like, in the last year or so with the with the Me Too movement and, you know, UK regulators coming out with pay disparities and putting that out front and center. Um, and then to have you know, somebody named to the New York Stock Exchange, a woman, such a prominent position, just got about 40 seconds left here. Do you feel like we're moving forward in terms of women really breaking the glass ceiling and making some momentum forward? I do. I really do. I think what's uh, what's different about this round, whether it's sexual harassment or uh, breaking into top positions, is the much larger number of women in the ranks uh, who can move up behind these pioneers. All right. Going to leave it on that note. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Joining us once again, Randy Watts is Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill and Company, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you back. Thanks for having me back. You are like pumped up because we're (laughs) like ready to go. Let's um, talk a little bit about the general market technicals. What do you see? Sure. So the general market technicals have improved over the last couple of weeks. 
you now have the major indices, the S&P and the NASDAQ and the S&P 600, which is a small cap index, all trading above both their 50 and their 200-day moving averages. So that's good. We would say that in general, though, the volume on the S&P 500 has maybe been not quite as strong as we'd have liked to see as We were talking about that earlier here, yeah. And also maybe not quite as broad sectorally as we would like to see. It's been uh, stronger on NASDAQ, which has obviously also regained its 50 and is only 3% off its all-time high. But we think the most interesting of the three averages right now is actually the S&P 600, which went to an all-time high last Wednesday. This is the small cap universe. This is the small cap universe. is trading above its support base at 990 and obviously also above its 50-day. The reason we think that's occurring is that small caps, which have not had a sustained period of outperformance since 2009 and 2010, they, they did well in 2016 but then lagged last year. And the reason we think they're doing better now is because their relative earnings growth is picking up. Uh, The small cap S&P 600 uh, trailing median earnings growth for the last five years is only 7% versus 9% for the S&P 500. So kind of behind the earnings cycle uh, of its large cap brethren, if you will? Exactly. And now we think that's changing. For this year, the S&P 600 median earnings growth should be about 20%. Wow. And about 14% for next year versus the S&P 500 at 18 and 10. Is this typical in a market cycle where the large caps are at their front and center and small caps maybe lag and pick up a a tailor end of that market cycle? Or or tell me what the relationship is. I think it's a couple of things. I think uh, the fact that the dollar is getting stronger obviously hurts a little bit large cap earnings. Who sell overseas, right? Exactly. And in addition, as the domestic economy picks up, it helps a lot of small companies that are only domestic-focused. In addition, there's a lot of small energy companies Mm. in the S&P 600, and obviously those companies are seeing a major turnaround in in profits, some of them going from losses to, to, to positive. In addition, small financials, small regional banks, et cetera, are also really picking up. So those are the two, two of the groups that are helping cause this acceleration here. And we think, you know, it's an area investors should be looking at in their portfolios. So recommending investors who've got new money to put to work, that's where you should go? Yes, we like are, small caps Are you here. recommending them sell out of some of those large cap names and, and put that money into small smaller cap? We think you want to have a balanced portfolio. And if you don't have exposure to small, we think this is an appropriate time to look at it. All right. One name, although I don't know that it's such a small cap. I would call it kind of a mid cap. It's got about a $5.1 billion market cap. And uh, you were eager to talk about it. I'm like, why do you want to talk about it? Uh, Pure Storage, which is taking a bit of a hit today. It is. The company reported its uh, first quarter results last night. They had uh, good numbers. Revenues grew 40% to about $256 million. What Pure Storage does is they are a leader in flash storage arrays for the data center. That's a rapidly growing market. Estimates are it could be a $12 billion market by 2022. Uh, this company did does about a, a billion dollars in sales last year. We think they can do north of 1.35 billion this year. So, so you know, 33 percent growth, and they're really a pure play in this area. Tell me what this area really means. Flash storage. It's sort of the next generation of storage for the data center, and one of the reasons that it's it's growing so rapidly is a lot of the higher end computing processes, like artificial intelligence, yeah. uh, run better on flash storage. Uh, because the ability, yeah, availability to access the information quicker, etc. That means everybody's going to have access to this because we just did a whole uh, edition of Bloomberg Business Week and a whole issue of uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine that was all about artificial intelligence because everybody's in it. 
yes, it's a very it's a very very rapidly growing uh, area. This company's rapidly growing. They added 300 customers in this past quarter to bring their total count to 4,800. And they've also got one thing that makes us feel good about it. They've got some very strong partner relationships, including Cisco and NVIDIA, who are both leaders in their spaces. So we think this is a company where if it could trade at four times uh, a January 2019 sales number, stock could be north of 26. It started at 21, 22 today, yeah, down a little bit on the earnings release because guidance wasn't maybe quite as quite a, they didn't raise guidance as much as maybe Wall Street before we got going though I said to you look free cash flow is down um, is that something to be worried about not for and they're com- not profitable yet not for a company at this point in its life cycle company came public I think in 2015 so yeah. it's very early on in its growth stage I think this is t- typical of technology companies early on who are they competing with aren't they competing with some big guns a lot of their competitors are very large people like Dell uh, NetApp uh, Hewlett Packard but we like the fact that this company's storage systems were designed from the bottom up to emphasize flash. And so we like the fact it's a pure play, and we also like the fact it's a new design. Uh, most of their sales right now in the U.S., but they can play globally, right? Correct, I would especially using would. their partnership relationships, which have influenced about 80% of their sales. PSTG is the ticker, and as you mentioned, the stock taking a bit of a hit today, down about 6%. Uh, and as for the year, still up about 40%. So it's had expectations are high on this one. Randy, always good to talk with you. Great. Thanks, Carol. Yeah, be well. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company in our New York studio. We've got the close coming your way in a second. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 